Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's fantastic having you here right now listening to me in this moment that we share. Anyway, let's get rid of the voiceover guy. I'm happy to be here. Actually, as this comes out today, I'll be in New York City. Actually, not New York City, but in um, New Jersey. Yeah, that's not something. But I'm I'm going to be in the US for the next few days. And um, I thought I'll record this before I leave because I can't record there. So yeah, the next few days you'll be hearing from me. If you do hear from me, it'll be from the US. And it's so weird because it's one of the first few times I'm traveling to the US. Actually, no, I've traveled a little bit when I did my college and university or college or university, college, whatever you want to call it. But uh, since then, that's two trips I've made, which is 2014 and 16. It's all about scouting out stand up, right? Getting the right contacts, getting the right venues, getting the right gigs, getting the oh my God, the whole research and putting out emails, contacting people, contacting other comedians. And this time I'm not doing any of that. I'm actually going on a holiday with my family. My family's already there. I'm going to spend a few days with them. Uh, but I might actually go as a visitor to stand up and maybe go catch a show at the Comedy Cellar if I'm lucky and I get a ticket and I have company. But um, I haven't really made any plans. And it's weird going all the way there without plans, right? Because as the stand-up me, I'm like, you're wasting this opportunity. But I'm going to go without any kind of pressure. I'm just going to go enjoy it. So just want to give you a heads up that I won't be here for the next few days. Like you care, like, like we're going to hang out between these episodes. Like you're like, Oh my God, where's Sandeep disappeared? You'll be hearing from me. Don't worry about it. But you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a guy who talks too much about politics and I'm not really keyed into politics, but I was, you know, of course I read the news occasionally and I, I, I kind of flip through articles which are too politically inclined or they're too you know, analytical about the political situation, whether, whether it's in India or anywhere in the world for that matter. But, you know, the Donald Trump thing keeps popping up now more and more because of the urgency that next year he's standing for re-election if he gets, of course, nominated as a Republican candidate. But I was just reading all these new indictments and these new accusations and these new things coming up. And if I do mess up the legal words, yeah, I apologize. But it's just crazy the number of cases that are against him, the number of times he's appeared, and he continues to just deny it, to play it up in his own narrative that he's the victim of this, in his own words, the witch hunt. And I find two things here, right? One is that it's just crazy if you believe what he says, because then it's almost like he is true and there's an entire sort of, uh, you know, attempt to kind of undermine him because he's the good guy and the system wants to get him. And the supporters will agree with that, right? They're like, yeah, he's the guy who's representing us and he's being brought down by the present government. But, you know, this is where it gets confusing. The second point being how fucked up is a system that can't really make a person in, in, in according to them, who's done so many things which are wrong and which a lot of past presidents have been uh, who have stepped down for and not even stepped down, they haven't even attempted to stand again. Uh, but this clearly, I, and this was an article I read called the, 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 I forget the exact term, but the, the, I think it's like the political stunt that he's able to get away with all this, right? Like the, the, the hush money thing, the, the lady who he allegedly, uh, I mean, I think it's already proven, or maybe he, the person who accused him of raping her and then all those documents that he took to his house and all these cassettes or whatever tapes that he, um, which came out showing that he had these conversations about secrets that he shouldn't have divulged to other people. And just that, and let's, let's just remember, remember, remember that this 
position has been something that all of us, whether we like it or not, have been constantly reminded as that the leader of the free world or the uh, chief of the armed forces, the person who has secrets to nuclear stashes, the person who has the suitcase or the football or whatever they call it, which can launch nuclear war. And it just seems that there's no um, way in which we can establish whether this guy is, you know, innocent or not. Because the moment you kind of put out the fact, there are other things that put it into doubt with whether it's the intention behind the um, investigation, whether it's the narrative that is wrong, whether it's the system that is against him. So that, And I think this comes down to what we are living in, the world we're living in, where there are multiple versions of the truth, which was never the case. Maybe there was lies projected as truth, but of course that was by one party. But now everyone seems to have the ability to create their own story and the own uh, reality which they believe into and it happens uh, every day it happens to everyone it happens more and more online but when it comes to this level of power and the politics of power the power politics what do you want to call it it's scary because the thing is if he is innocent then there clearly needs to be a reshift in the system and then that's just a thing that he would say is being done to him but if these accusations if these uh, indictments of all these facts that they've found are unbiased and true, then you're just looking at a person who's, um, you know, a criminal who's being elected to this position and things, characteristics like ego, this guy's got an ego as big as the US, if not bigger. And he's got a fan base who claims that he can do no wrong and okay, leave it. Okay. That's what, that's, that's what they're going to settle for. And as I said, again, I'm not a political expert or a political pundit, but it's scary because this guy's got access to a lot of shit and he's already shown that the first time he got access to it, he did a lot of shit with it. So, and I don't know, man, when I get caught doing something wrong, I just feel like shit. I feel ashamed. And there's a thing that Indians feel, right? We feel ashamed. Like, oh my God, it was something as simple as jerking off. And someone's like, did you, were you, were you, yeah, like, no, oh, I can't believe it. I feel we need to have some Indian aunties talk him down because I think there's the huge bulk of uh, shaming from the Indian auntie community. And I think they'll do a great job, just sit him down and really make him feel like a piece of shit. But I don't know if that will affect him because I think he's beyond that. But we need next level uh, sitting down going, you know what, Donald, you have really done a bad thing. And um, whatever auntie it could be. And I think excessively every day for the next 100 days or 200 days till he's um, going to campaign or stand, I don't know what it takes to get through to this person because when they believe that they are truly in the right and they convince millions of people that they are in the right and then what is being done is the wrong uh, version of the truth, that's fucking amazing and scary. And the power of social media again comes to play, right? Because that's what is being used to drive home this message of I'm the victim and look what's being done to me. So please support me and we'll get through this together. And that is fucking scary. Anyway, I'm, I'm heading there. I'll give you an update let you know what he, if I meet him, get him on the podcast. I doubt he'll agree. But um, yeah, anyway, let me talk about something more positive. And that's the conversation with today's guest, Professor Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. He's a professor of psychology at the universe, at Clark University, not University of Clark. I don't know what the difference is. In Massachusetts, that's a word which I love saying, especially when I get it right. Today's conversation is all about culture. Uh, professor Jeffrey has written a book about emerging adulthood. That's the age between 18 and 25. What these young adults experience, the transition, the, the, the phases that they go through. 
We talk about that on today's episode. And besides that, we talk about the concept of culture. And I'm really, really uh, excited about this conversation because there's so many nuances about culture, cultural context, cultural conditioning. What does culture do to the mindset? When does culture take hold of a young mind? What does it do? What's the influence it has on their perspective, on the way they look at life, the way they look at their values, whether it's family, whether it's friendship, whether it's sex, whether it's sexuality. And there's so much more to talk about. And we cover a lot of that in today's episode. And of course, I had to ask him about cultural appropriation and cancel culture. And of course, you can stay tuned to hear what he has to say about it. Professor Jeffrey, if you're listening, I appreciate you joining me. And to all of you listening, as always, thank you so much. Till the next episode. Goodbye. God bless. Take care of yourselves. Cheers. Well, it's lovely to have you on the podcast, uh, Jeffrey Jensen, Arnett. I really appreciate you joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Well, you've spent many years in your field of work and, you know, I, I, I'd love to cover all of it and I hope you have enough time to do that. But something which struck, uh, you know, stood out for me is this concept that you um, would would like to be included more in the study of psychology and that's this notion of culture. So... Could you, um, I think to start with, could we address this idea of how culture shapes the mind and how maybe the concept of cultural conditioning is influential and at what age that influence makes the most impact? Sure. Let me start out by saying what I mean by culture, because that word is used very broadly and Mm -hmm. in very diverse ways. I mean by it a set of beliefs that drives a common way of life. Mm. So it's the economic basis of a group's way of life. It's how they structure family family relations. It's what they expect out of girls and boys, men and women. But above all, it's a way of looking at the world. It's usually a set of religious beliefs that's part of it, and it's really the foundation of it. All cultures have some kind of set of common religious beliefs, but it's also beliefs about right and wrong in other ways. It's beliefs about a sort of divine hierarchy, if you will. Often there's beliefs about the way men and women are, boys and girls are, inherently. And it's about the ways of parents and children, husbands and wives, family members more broadly. It's a way of believing what's best in a community, how you treat other people, and whom you especially recognize. It's also about whom you exclude. I mean, that's important to to recognize about culture, that it's often about our group and what binds us together. And part of what binds us together is being distinct from other groups. So often what goes with it is believing that your group's way of life and your group's beliefs are best. And people who don't share that culture, that way of life and that set of beliefs are inferior. Mm -hmm. So we think of culture often as a good thing. You know, it's nice to have a culture and it's nice for people to be united like that. But it's important to recognize the underside of it too. It also means that 
your culture is better than others and yeah. you're excluding some people is is at the same time you bind your group together yeah you know it's a funny thing that i keep hearing sometimes in 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 uh, you know people my parents age in that group is when they introduce someone or they're talking about someone and that, that person is meant to be flattered or complimented or put in a good light they say he was very nice he was very cultured and i'm like what does that mean right <laughs> that's why i thought it was important to define it because yeah. you use it in all sorts of ways right but I've, being cultured is a great tra- yeah so i want to make sure you know what i say when i use that word no and i really appreciate that because uh you know many times now in the narrative on in in media or when people are talking about india because of course there's a reemergent power which is coming from india right because after the the british rule there was this kind of colonial hangover where indians felt that you know to be accepted in the world they have to kind of follow the british protocol which is speak the language well study in a university abroad and do the things that were prescribed by that particular quote unquote culture or that way of life but now there's this uh, sort of the, the indians are embracing their original their own language there's a resurgence of a lot of indian based uh, belief systems and indian based practices but a lot of times what happens which is a positive thing of course i want to say initially but a lot of times what happens is if someone does something against the grain or the fabric of what is perceived as indian culture people are like that's not indian culture and that's such a broad term because india is a country of so many languages and each geography varies from another just by virtue of what people eat what people believe in the practices and yes we can say hindu hinduism and and islam and christianity the bigger religions but there are a lot of these sub contexts that are so unique to a country like ours and of course that every country has its own signature for that particular uh, group and that particular cultural identity but when the negative side is when you p- sort of put everyone to see such broad brush strokes as indian culture i feel it takes away from a lot of the 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 nuances and things that make these groups and make make these uh, in uh, these subgroups if you want to call them so um interesting and so culturally rich for a country right absolutely and i think it's fascinating that people talk about an indian culture because i know what they mean i mean, i know a lot of indians i've had several indians as graduate students that i've mentored i have met Indian colleagues now I've been invited to India and spent time there and talked to many many Indians so mm-hmm. I know what they mean and when I meet an Indian person I have certain expectations based on what I've know of Indian culture but yeah. at the same time one of the things that makes Indian fascinating is that it's a place of hundreds of cultures I mean it's an amazing place it's incredibly culturally diverse mm-hmm. it's not only that you have yes you have the Hindu culture that's dominant you also have the second largest muslim population in the world over yeah. 200 million muslims that's a culture of itself too i mean they're indian too but mm-hmm. they're obviously not the same in many ways as the hindus they're, they're, that's a running tension mm-hmm. that's part of indian society i think it's part of its vitality and and part of its potential but you also have hundreds of these local cultures where they have a specific language and they have their way of dress they have distinctive foods and they have distinctive beliefs they have their own sort of tribal local beliefs so it's an amazing place i can yeah. tell you anthropologists 
have found it fascinating for over a century because everywhere you go in India, there are these distinctive cultures all over the place. And there, yes, there's a common Indian culture, but there's also incredible diversity within that broad umbrella. And I think that is something that goes unacknowledged, you know, because many times, and that's a really, I think, important point in today's context is when, yes, the cultural uh, values or the cultural bond is something which is so inherent and it's important for human beings. And over years, we've developed these cultural things, as you said, familial relationships, it could be the parent-child relationship, it could be the language, it could be the food, it could be rituals which are passed on because of whatever uh, thing they served, right? Whether it's religious rituals, whether it's waking up early, having a bath on a festival day, keeping clean. These could be for hygiene. It could be for preserving this this sense of civilized, uh, a civilized way of living. Um, and what happens as a result is you, you have these things. And if I may call them so, some many of these things could be even like guiding principles that are wise in their ways. That's why they've stu- stood the test of time. But the exclusive nature of this is that my practice is better than yours. My practices are better than yours. And that creates this thing where you forget the human being or you forget about the nuance. You get about the importance of these little things that make us different or make our groups different. But then you look at the larger things, which is, oh, they eat pork. I'm a vegetarian. Or, you know what I mean? These small yeah. things can become very sort of, uh, it can be create a lot of animosity and you forget to see the things that make us similar and appreciate the differences as opposed to that you see the differences as a point of hate-based uh, way of viewing that group. And that that is, I feel a lot of that is starting to happen or maybe it's the undercurrents uh, have been there, but it's coming to the forefront more and more. And I want to say one more thing before I hand it over to you is that with all the tension and with all the disparity in India for years, there's still been some sense of coherence despite the various languages, the subcultures or the cultures. But we've always seemed to find some sense of unity when it comes to um, kind of getting by every day. Of course, I'm not talking about in the face of being invaded by the Mughals or the British. Of course, there was a lot of division then. But I'm saying there's some thing that's kept the fabric together and not every day you, you see violence or like these these mass shootings or whatever it may be right but i feel the undercurrent of that tension is coming and and more and more people are looking at these one or two points to to look at another group saying they are not us they are not similar they go against a certain sense of what it's meant to be indian and and why does that happen yeah i think there it is contested what is indian and it always, maybe always has been, certainly since the British have been there and enforced a lot of British things on Indian society. And as you said, there's a hangover from the British occupation. It's still there. Mm-hmm. And it might have certain benefits. I've heard that the judicial system that the British established is a, a very valued part of Indian society. It's still there. It still functions reasonably well. The train system was built by the British, and that mm-hmm. is a crucial part of Indian society. There may be certain advantages to it, but that hangover is still there. Mm-hmm. So what it is Indian today, I think, is contested, and maybe inevitably in a place that's so diverse. But I... You know India obviously better than I do. I only know it as an outsider and somebody mm-hmm. who knows some Indians and has been there briefly. I guess I, I I hope good things for India. I hope you 
keep it together without splintering more. And, and I think that's difficult to do with all the tensions between Muslims and Hindus and now Christians. I know there's a lot of Christian proselytizing in India that is resented mm. by Hindus. Um, and then you have, again, all the tribal groups, the smaller groups that have, they have their own ways of life. How are those going to uh, be maintained and, and remain distinct in modern society, I think is a good question. Mm. But I think there are always challenges for India. There are challenges in my country in the U.S. too. I mean, mm. we feel like we're splintering right mm -hmm. now, honestly. Maybe worse than India is. Yeah. At least that's what it seems to me as somebody who lives there. I think it is always a challenge, this tension between unity and diversity in any society. Right. We, we benefit from a cultural way of life. It helps us structure life. It helps us know what to expect. It helps make human relations smoother mm -hmm. when we have expectations for what father is going to do in relation to child and mother is going to do in relation to father. And head of the household is going to do in relation to head of other households. And the way marriage is structured is, is a crucial way that social life is structured, right? You have still a dominance of arranged marriage in India. Mm. And that, to an American, to many people in the West, seems bizarre. How could you allow somebody else, your parents, to make such a crucial decision for you? Mm. But there are a lot of benefits to it. it. It it really, I've talked to a lot of Indians about it, and even highly educated Indians will often say, well, they know more than I do. They're more mature. They're more experienced. They love me and they're devoted to me, so I trust them to make that decision. But that's a good example of how culture both structures and restricts or inhibits. Culture does help structure something like an arranged marriage, but obviously it inhibits individual choice because now somebody else is making that choice, not you. And it's a, such a crucial choice for setting up the rest of your life. So I think that's a, a, a dynamic that's a constant tension in a culture. It helps mm. structure life and it also restricts individual choice. So how much individual choice are we going to allow? Right. You always allowed a lot in the U.S. Partly because we've also been we've always been this kind of mixing and colliding of different cultures. Mm -hmm. the first Europeans got here and found all sorts of Native American groups who were already having their own collisions. I mean, there were dozens, maybe hundreds of Native American cultures, and now the Europeans come in and they bring the slaves. They bring thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of slaves. And now there's that tension as part of our heritage. And then we let in immigrants from all around the world. And we have this tremendous colliding of different cultures. And so we're trying to find an American way of life. We have been, since our origins, trying to find American life that is a common thing that we can have as a basis of our national life and that allows us to speak to each other and live together, but at the same time allow for 
cultural diversity and individual diversity. That's a tension you find maybe more in the U.S. than just about any other country, although I think it's it's abundant in India too. Yeah, which is, I think, quite amazing, right? Because there's this um, group of, you know, and, and, I, and I hate the fact that it comes down to color because sometimes it's it's so many different cultures or different ethnic groups and it's just broken down into you know the 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 african americans the white americans the caucasian americans the asians and i feel that america is much more diverse and much more uh you know got much a lot more depth when it comes to the number of kinds of people who come there because of just the way uh the immigrants have been flocking to america for years and what what i uh would like to talk about is this sense when it comes to um you know a lot of the traits when it came to uh in india and indians it was a sense of duty and as you mentioned for the arranged marriage you are willing to forsake your individual choice and trust in your family choosing a partner for you or the sense of you know i will do what my parents expect me to do because that's what society or our group will judge us by and if i um you know do something against what they against their will i've let them down i'm a bad son i'm a bad child and now everyone's going to judge my family and of course if you look at in afghanistan they have this thing of honor right if your family name has been dishonored then it's your entire life's mission to go, kind of you know seek vengeance and regain that honor so it's just one example in my limited knowledge but what i want to understand is um say in america a lot of people say it's the gun culture or they say it's this culture what um when when it's that narrative for a cultural group right i, I whether it's um you know it's the south indians who have a certain way of how the family and the the, the male child should be or the, the or the girl child should be say or if it's like in in the african american culture it's how the, the, the there is certain cultural traits that predominate i i know i'm being a little vague with the examples but i want to understand because from a psychological point of view how important are these to shape a person's perspective and world view. Well, I think again there's this theme of unity and diversity. I think people who live here, who grow up here and many of the immigrants as well, they feel American in the sense that they are inspired by the ideal of freedom and possibility. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that has distinguished the US since the beginning. It's the ideal of freedom and wide open possibility. Mm-hmm. Now, that's never been exactly the reality from the beginning. I mean, we had these authors of the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution who wrote all these flowery words about freedom. Mm-hmm. But at that time it was freedom for a very limited portion of society it was only white land owning men those were the only people could vote thomas jefferson who wrote those inspiring words of the declaration of independence we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness wow what amazing words yeah he owned slaves <laughs> his entire adult life he in, owned other men and women he bought and sold them he exploited their labor and paid them nothing and yet he could write those words and i believe he wrote them in all sincerity 
Yeah. And we've kind of been living with that legacy ever since. It's, it's, it's an ideal of freedom and possibility, but it's a reality that's much more restricted and much less inspiring, honestly. It's, it's much messier. Yeah. It's, it's striving for that ideal of freedom and possibility while living with the messy reality that not everybody gets an equal share of that freedom. Mm. And some people in his time, including his own slaves, got no freedom at all. And so we have that tension still. We have, it's an amazing place. We still let in millions of immigrants every year, including many from India. I mean, we've really had a huge surge of Indian immigration yeah. in the last 50 years. And I think it's a tremendous thing for our society. I mean, I think the Hispanic immigrants and the Asian immigrants and the Muslim immigrants, they all add tremendous vitality to American society. Mm. But it's not an easy unity that we have. Because even though we have those ideals, the reality of of it is that we're human too. And we have our prejudices. Yeah. And we have our in-group, out-group kind of thinking where we like our way and we're a bit suspicious of people who have other ways, as people yeah. inevitably do when they come here from other countries and cultures. And so mm. we're, we're constantly living with that tension between unity and diversity, just like you are in India, and, and maybe more so in some ways because we allow so many more immigrants. And that's fascinating to me, right? When you look at some of these countries like Norway or uh, Sweden, which doesn't have as many immigrants as, say, um, the UK or the, or the US, it, it seems to be, I wouldn't, you know, at the, at the risk of being wrong, uh, they, they look a little bit more homogenous, right? They seem to be the happiest country, always Norway is coming, always the happiest country. But as you said, the tension when there are so many groups, uh, I wouldn't say in contact, but groups that are trying to retain in some ways, um, you, know, you know, establish their cultural identity, there is going to be some push and give, right? There's someone else saying my way is better, or someone just being sus- suspicious of that way of life saying, you know, that I don't think that's good. And I remember recently reading how when, when the East India Company first came to India, they were a business uh, trading company. So their end goal was profit, not to conquer, not to invade. But the moment when it changed from a business model to a, um, a model of uh, colonization, then the entire identity of the Indian people was taken away. Their language was not respected. Their way of life was not respected. When, while when it was a business, that was actually acknowledged, saying, you know, you might in fact have some practices that we can take back and it'll actually help us. So I found that very interesting because now if you look at countries, you know, in the US, you have a lot of the issues with the Black Lives Matter movement where people feel there's a lot of in, um, discrimination from by the police or you look at what happened in Paris and the entire uprising there, the riot rioting there. It it seems like there are, there's a, resur- I wouldn't say resurgence, but there's this big um, push from the, the voices that traditionally were not heard and that were, you know, who, you know, they 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 came from whether Algeria or Morocco. They came uh, willingly or unwillingly. They came as refugees or they came as uh, legal migrants. 
the problem is that system of the promise of democracy they were never uh, never allowed to kind of feel it so now there's this tension around the world in all countries and 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 is that is that because of any particular phenomenon is it because of uh, the information age we live in where people are able to connect more easily and share ideas more easily and kind of be in touch more easily uh, or, or or is there any other reason why uh, any other catalyst why this is suddenly being seen across different countries well again we are cultural animals and part of being a cultural animal is this tendency to value the ways of our group the most there's a psychological power in that there's a real unity in that that really has some positive effects it makes you have a very strong sense of belonging mm-hmm. it creates a lot of social trust between people and that can be the basis of a really harmonious and positive and productive social life. So let's take the Scandinavian example. And that's an example that I, I know well, because I've been married to a Danish woman for 35 years now. Mm-hmm. And I've been to Denmark almost every year in those 35 years. I, it's a place I know well. I right. the language. I read the language. I know Denmark. And it's a fascinating place. It, too, has a claim to the happiest place in the world, at least some years on the international survey. (laughs) Right. And there are a lot of things that I really value about Danish life. I mean, it's very well run, that society. It's safe. It's clean. It's one of the richest societies in the world. It has a great deal of equality. You almost never see poor people. Mm-hmm. In Denmark, there's, there's some range between rich and um, not exactly poor, but certainly less rich right. uh, or less wealthy in Denmark. But it's not the, the kind of a screen, extremes you see in the U.S. Mm. You don't really poor people and you don't see hardly any really rich people. Right. And so they've created this amazing society where there's a tremendous um, amount of wealth. There's a tremendously high standard of living. It's It functions extremely well. Crime is very low. You have very little in the way of violent kind of disruption of society. You have a lot of political conflict, but it's not the kind of rhetoric that you see in my own country where people are threatening to overthrow the government and mm. they're demonizing people who are in opposing political party and 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 there's this threat of instability and violence in my country all the time. That's just not the way it is in Denmark. They disagree, but within a kind of civil discourse that is is really productive. I mean, democracy is all about disagreement. Of course, you're going to have disagreement. Yeah. But the question is whether you can have it within a certain frame of civil discourse that doesn't threaten the whole system. So Denmark has all that going for it, but it's not diverse. It's a really homogeneous society. I mean, you hardly ever see anyone who looks like they're from somewhere else. Right. I've been there 35 years almost every year. It's hard for me to think of when I've ever seen a black person from the U.S. or Africa. You see an occasional Middle Eastern-looking person, 
Mm-hmm. And that's because Denmark, like a lot of Western countries, who like to think of themselves as generous peoples who are sympathetic to the suffering around the world, they've let in some Muslim immigrants in recent years from places like Syria and uh, some other places in the Middle East, Pakistan, in, in South Asia, um, not I wouldn't say many, if any, Indians mm. that I've ever seen. But they let in some immigrant, some immigrants in the past 20 years who have been migrants, refugees from other places. Mm. But they haven't even been able to effectively assimilate, accept, integrate those that small number of immigrants. It's a it's a huge issue in Denmark, even though it's a very small number of immigrants. Right. They have Syrians that have been living there for 10 or 15 years that they're now trying to remove from the country. I read about the Quran they, and those incidents, yeah. Well, no, because they say, oh, Syria is fine now. You can go back. We didn't really mean for you to stay here. <laughs> it was just really an extended vacation for 15 years. Now we want you to go. This yeah. was never intended to be uh, a permanent thing. And it's disgraceful. It's shameful. Honestly, I, I love Denmark, but I deplore this. I can't believe they're doing this. Mm. But at the same time, I understand it because they have this homogeneity that is the basis of this very good common life they've built. And it's not built on an ethic of diversity, the way it is in the U.S., the way it is from the beginning of our founding. Send us your tired, your poor, your struggling masses yearning to breathe free. That's the the Statue of Liberty in our country, something like that. You know, that's our ideal. It's it's in Ellis, is it on Ellis Island in the New York Harbor when you arrive in New York as millions and millions of people have in the past two hundred years. They don't have that ideal. They yeah. don't they're not saying give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be to breathe free. They're saying, oh, we, we, we like it the way it is, <laughs> and we don't want it to change. Uh, it makes for, in some people's view, a, a somewhat bland society. But it's happy. <laughs> so. Not a lot of diversity or vitality or change. But it's, it's, it's a really good place to live in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and a part of me doesn't blame them for not wanting to change it. I see why they value it. I value it too. Right. I love to get away from the chaos and violence and yeah. conflict in my own country when I go to Denmark. I feel a lot safer there, honestly. Mm. You, know, you know, there's, um, I don't know if, if, I, if, I, if I'm going to be taking you on a tangent when I ask you the next couple of points. I, I find this um, this topic of cultural appropriation um, being quite widely spoken about and people using it when it suits them uh, to feel a certain way, to feel protected or to feel when they feel wrong, that they're like, oh, cultural appropriation when it comes to either fashion or food or a way of life or certain things, especially recently I heard someone uh, talking about how, you know, there are so many white people teaching yoga 
and they find it very offensive. And <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> so I was Because like, cultural appropriation. <laughs> yeah, I found that fascinating. I'm like, trust me, they're not doing it the way the way a Hindu mystic is doing. It. <laughs> I just found that interesting. Everyday Hindu is doing it. They they inject it with all sorts of California nonsense. <laughs> so what? What? I mean, why? Why is okay? Um, I get it. Maybe you know. A certain way of dressing, a certain way of food is wiped out because it doesn't suit a group that dominates over another. But, or someone might find, you know, uh, Michelle Obama wearing a sari for a thing uh, like cultural <laughs> appropriation. I, I don't get it. Why a thing? Why is it seen as a bad thing? Could you explain? Because I, I could be wrong. I could have it wrong. But why is cultural appropriation with these kinds of things, with food or clothing or music or uh, things that are cultural representations of a group why is it seen bad um as, as a bad thing i don't know i think the idea of cultural appropriation is idiotic frankly because culture part of what it is is that it's constantly mixing mm -hmm. i mean we are defensive about keeping the culture that we know and that we're part of we're often defensive about keeping it the same but the fact is when cultures are adjacent to each other they're constantly mixing they may all want to stay the way they are and and distinguish their culture from the other one and and exclude the other culture but the fact is we can't help but mix when we're when we're adjacent to each other you know in India, you have the Hindus and the Muslims, and they've, they're still distinct in many ways, but in many ways, they're not. Of course, yeah. they influence each other. They influence yeah. each other all the time. In the U.S., we have so many different cultures, and often they're trying to remain distinct from each other. But eventually, inevitably, it spills over because we're culturally creative. We're constantly looking for new ideas about how to live that might be in some ways more interesting than the way we have or might add vitality to the way they have. And so I think cultural appropriation, it's a stick that some people on the left use to beat people who they don't like for one reason or another. It's, it's a stick that people sometimes use who want to keep their culture the same mm. and don't want other people infringing on it or threatening it but cultural appropriation is inevitable whenever we're whenever we are exposed to different cultural ways because we're culturally creative we're constantly asking ourselves at least implicitly oh maybe this would be interesting to try this way of dress this way of of preparing food this way of thinking and so it, it's I agree with you that it's it's uh, not it's not a a productive concept cultural mm. appropriation. I understand why people are protective of their culture and sometimes want to prevent other people from borrowing from it, but it's, it's futile. Of course, we borrow from it, and I think it's I honestly think it's a great thing. Yeah. I have some 
in clothes that I love to wear. They're very comfortable. Yeah. And I certainly nobody would claim that's cultural appropriation. That doesn't make me Indian. Nobody would yeah. think it does. That would be But funny if fun. like someone like, like like a white American would come up to the Indian and be like, "How dare you wear that Abercrombie Ab- Abercrombie and Fitch hoodie?" <laughs> right? That's yeah, you know the, the the people who own the Indian restaurant that I go to all the time here in Worcester. Yeah. I think they'd be very disappointed if I decided that was cultural appropriation to go to their restaurant and I didn't yeah. come there anymore. I mean, we yeah. can all really gain from sharing our cultural ways of life. With each other I, again that that's one of the great things about the u.s i have a lot of things that i deplore about my country especially in the last 10 years many of the things that have occurred that i think have been regrettable and in yeah. some ways shameful but one thing about it that it, that's really great that's part of our history and still part of us is that we let in people from all over the world yeah and we say okay you can come here and It's on you to make a life for yourself. And yes, there's a tremendous collision and conflict between cultures. But generally, it works remarkably well. We have let in people from all over the world, and we still do. We still do have an American identity. And we fall short of it all the time, of that ideal of freedom and possibility and give us your tired, you're poor, you're huddled masses. We fall short of it all the time, but it's still there. It's still there. It's still shining as an ideal. And we're maybe always going to be striving for it, maybe just because we're human, just like people everywhere. We're imperfect. Our society is imperfect. But yeah. it, there's a lot of vitality in the U.S. It, it's a place where a lot of things happen, as you know. You know, people come here from all over the world and they invent things and they create things and they contribute to something to our common life. And that, that just gives us a tremendous amount of cultural and economic influence all over the world, far disproportionate to our numbers. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember moving, living in the, the, the U.S. for a few years and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed university life, college life, the campus life. But you know, one thing I I I I I feel that there's a sense of security. Like I grew up, I was born in India. I grew up in India, and of course, I can't speak for all Indians because it's so hard to do that. But for the Indian sure. people I know, there, you know, many of them, you know, we, we I, you know, I, I have to put this disclaimer that you know I am privileged. I grew up speaking English. I grew up with access to a lot of things and. And, and because, you know, of my visual impairment, my parents thought it would be good for me to get an education abroad because of the infrastructure and the accessibility um, with the system there. So I was fortunate enough to go there to understand what it means to live abroad, be independent and make friends who are from America, from around the world in some way. I, I, I lived in the UK as well. Um, but there's a sense of, sense of security where I don't have to prove my Indianness. Uh, wherever I go, I don't have to wear Indian clothes. I don't have to speak the language. I don't have to walk around with the you know a box of curry around me or listen to Bollywood music. And I I I feel so comfortable, not constantly trying to prove I'm Indian, right? But I feel when I meet some people, say who were born uh, when when I when I was living in the UK, when I was living in Swansea, actually in Wales, um, you know, I went for an international union uh, day out, and there were Pakistanis, there were Indians, there were people from everywhere, and there were a couple of Indians and Pakistani who were British born. 
And they seemed to be hosting these events and they were very, very keen on, on, on sort of highlighting the Pakistaniness of the event or the, or the Indianness of what they were doing or the food. And, and what I found is, um, and, and I met this one guy and he came to my, my place I was staying. My roommates were, uh, there were three guys, one from Wales, one from Kent, one from, sorry, one from uh, Bristol and one other person from Cheltenham. They were, they were white British people. And there was one Sri Lankan friend who was born in. Th- so this guy asked me, he said, hey, how come you're living with these people? Why didn't you come with, live with us Indians? And he was a British born Indian. And I said, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I wasn't offended by any means, but I realized then there's a sense of cultural or there's a sense of confusion. So a lot of the Indian friends, uh, American-born Indians I know who are living in California or living wherever, whose parents went in the 70s and 80s and these kids were born, they were, they were exposed to a different notion of India where they grew up watching Bollywood films. Some of them would ask me, have you watched this movie? And I'm like, never watched it. I, I in fact, grew up, grew up watching, you know, Maybe Magnificent Men in a Flying Machine or Mad Mad World or The Swiss Family Robinson. And, and I haven't watched a Hindi movie till I was 17 or 18. And But none of those things define me as being Indian. But for them, I, I don't know what it is because they're, one part of their life has to be this going, uh, playing baseball, playing little league, going and playing the sports or going to a school where they have to interact with so many people. And the other part when they come back home is to, you have to speak, uh, you have to speak the language of your, 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 your parents. You have to be the Indian, you have to touch the elders' feet when they come. I've never, I mean, unless I want to touch someone's feet, I've never touched them. But I'm just trying to sort of create this picture for you of how sometimes a person who's <laughs> Indian growing up in India or a Pakistani grew up, in, grew up in Pakistan is so different culturally and culturally comfortable than a person who's uh, growing up in a different society or a different culture. And I found that fascinating. Yeah. And this is the immigrant paradox, right? Mm-hmm. Families come, parents come to a new country because they want a better life. Mm-hmm. And they may have all sorts of motivations. Maybe they're fleeing persecution. Maybe they just think the economic possibilities are better. Maybe they miss their family who has already immigrated. There are a lot of reasons. But generally, they come because they want a better way of life. Yeah. So they want their children to have those possibilities. Often the parents are resigned to not having those opportunities themselves. Mm -hmm. They feel like the chance has already passed, but they want a better chance for their children. So they come for their children and they want their children to thrive in the new society, whether it's England or the U.S. or France or wherever. Mm. They want their kids to thrive in the new society, of course. That's the whole point of being there. But at the same time, they don't want them to lose the culture they came from. I've seen this a lot. So I, for the last 30 years, the main age period that I've studied as a developmental psychologist mm-hmm. is age 18 to 29 that I call emerging adulthood. And so I've interviewed a lot of Chinese Americans, some Indian Americans, but a lot especially of Chinese Americans. Those are the ones that the Asian group that we have the most of. And often they'll say, you know, we speak Mandarin at home, and my, it's very important to my parents that I speak Chinese, that we make Chinese food, that we observe Chinese rituals. You know, we we have a we have an altar in in this special room that we all uh, have religious rituals at. It's very important to them, but it's not as important to me. I grew up here. You know, yeah. I grew up watching American TV shows and listening to American music and having 
friends from all sorts of different cultural groups, and we're, but we're all Americans. We have that com in common, and we, we share these things. We speak English to each other. And, and you can see that they still value the culture of their parents, but they're not tied to it in the same way. And their, their, their own children will be even less so. Yeah, they will now maybe marry somebody from their own culture group, but probably not. And even if they do, it'll probably be somebody who grew up in the U.S. like them. Mm. And so inevitably, their children will be will be less Chinese than their parents are, or even than they are. Mm. And especially if they marry somebody who's from a different ethnic group, which is very very likely. Yeah, because there's people from so many different groups and their friends and social contacts are from so many different groups. So that's, that's the, the inevitable consequence of immigration after a couple of generations. Especially, unless you're in a society where you really exclude everybody else or you are excluded. So the Jews kept their cultural cohesion for thousands of years Mm. where they went because everybody hated them mm. and nobody would allow them to integrate into the rest of society. And in many cases, they didn't really want to. They wanted to maintain their cultural cohesion. Right. They were able to do that for generation after generation, but it required an extreme level of them being excluded and persecuted. Right. And also a mentality on their part that they really didn't want to mix with people outside their Jewish community. But mm. almost every other culture everywhere else that has ever immigrated anywhere, eventually, after just a couple of generations, really gets assimilated into the larger society. There, there's a real inevit inevitability to it once you immigrate. Right. You know, you mentioned the group that you've um, focused on uh, your, your, your studying um, area of study in, and that's of course the emerging adult. Um, I want to understand because a lot of uh, I, I'm 40 years old, so I, in many ways I'm ancient to these people. <laughs> so I, I I want to understand a lot of the narrative around them is, especially from the older group, is that they are less resilient. They they are woke. They have all these um, worldviews which are very out of sync and they want, uh, they, they're very protected. Uh, they, they um, you know, they want things uh, to be in a certain way. So they, they, I, they, they have a very different uh, set of inputs when they were growing up because they grew up with the internet and access to uh, mobile phones, social media, and the age of information. So you of course have been uh, doing this research for 30 odd years uh, and you spoke about, before we started recording, you spoke about how the emerging adult, uh, the landscape that they've arrived into, the the influences and everything that defines uh, what is expected of them or what they can look forward to has changed. So could we possibly go in that direction, if you don't mind? Sure. I can't really speak to India, right. although I have a brilliant student. Uh, who's just a few years graduated, named Dia Mitra, who did her dissertation research in India. I think you'd enjoy interviewing her sometime. Absolutely, um, yeah. I'd love to have but, her. But I, I know the U.S. well, and we have the same kind of narrative here about emerging adults, that 
this rising generation is too sensitive and they're lazy and they know they don't really want to grow up they're they're trying to avoid adult responsibilities we have a lot of negative stereotypes about them and they're all nonsense i mean i know this group really well and yeah. i know the statistics about them i would know after 30 years if any of this is true and it's not mm. it's just a consequence of really rapid social change. So it really has changed a lot what it's like to be in the age group 18 to 29 compared right. to, say, 1960. I often use 1960 as a baseline year right. because a lot of things started to change in 1960 that are still changing. So we began to make the transition from an industrial economy to an information economy or what's sometimes called a knowledge economy which mm -hmm. i like yeah. so from making things we still make a lot of things in the u.s but more and more of it since 1960 is done by machines or it's yeah. done by indians in india a lot of our manufacturing has yeah. shifted to india and china but even more of it has changed to machines do it yeah so that that's been a huge change so it's mean it, the impact of that on 18 to 29 year olds is they need more education than mm -hmm. they did in 1960. In the knowledge economy, you have to know things that people, other people don't know. And so you'll be paid to know them. And that's grown and grown since 1960. So you have more and more people getting education beyond secondary school. It might be college or university. It might be a trade school. It might be learning something like, uh, installing things or repairing things or delivering things. You have to know something that other people don't know. That's a huge change. Another huge change is the sexual revolution and the way that changed premarital sex from taboo to widely accepted. I mean, in yeah. 1960, premarital sex was rare and contraception was not really available, the birth control pill was not invented yet. And most other contraception was actually illegal in most states. Mm. So premarital sex was rare. Uh, people had big families because they liked having sex once they got married. Yeah. And then the sexual revolution took place along with the contraceptive revolution. And in the, in the aftermath of that, the great majority of Americans start, started beginning their sex life around the age of 20, uh, many years before they got married. Mm -hmm. And we had a gender revolution since then, too, that completely changed the role of men and women. It gave women a huge range of possibilities they didn't have before. So now they weren't in such a hurry to get married and and have children anymore. That helped drive the, the median age of marriage up. Mm -hmm. So compared to 1960, people now get married almost a decade later. They right. have their child almost a decade later. That's an incredible revolution right there. Mm. Millions more of them get more education than their parents and grandparents had. So it's really changed what it's like to be 18 to 29. And it does take longer to reach adulthood if adulthood is defined by stable work, marriage, and parenthood, which is the way it's traditionally defined. Mm -hmm. We define adulthood that way 
it comes about a decade later than it did in 1960. But that doesn't mean they're lazy. And it doesn't mean they're not resilient. It doesn't mean they don't want to become adults. It means that it takes longer than before to prepare yourself for adulthood. And it means you have more freedom to decide when you want to take on those adult transitions. And most people would prefer to take them on around 30 instead of around age 20. And there are a lot of advantages to that. If you, if you have your entire decade of your 20s to try out different ways of life and try this educational path and maybe that educational path and then maybe this job and that job and another job and maybe you want to live here for a while and then you decide you want to live here instead. You don't have to get anybody's permission. You just go. And you try out relationships. You learn how to be a romantic partner. You learn the ways of intimate couple life. And hopefully you get better at it in the course of a decade of trying. And you wait till 30 to have your first child and you have your fun. And so when that first child comes, you're really ready. Because trust me, as a parent of 23-year-olds, once the first child arrives, you're not ever going to be free the way you were before. So well, yeah, it, in all these ways, a good thing. And yet these grumpy parents and grandparents, their generation, oh, you know, these kids today, they don't want to grow up. They don't want to take on adulthood. That, that's nonsense. They, they just are wiser than you were because they're not doing these things at 20. That was a bad idea. Don't you know that <laughs> from your own experience? You had huge sky-high divorce rates. You had, you know, three, four, five kids and had no idea what you're doing becoming a parent at 20. And you cut off all your personal possibilities at the age of 20. Instead of allowing yourself the decade, this fabulous decade of freedom to try out different ways of life before you committed yourself to a definite path of work and a definite uh, marriage partner, you, you didn't use that opportunity for fun and freedom, but they're using it. And you should be admiring them and commending them instead of dumping on them and criticizing them. Yeah. I'm 40 and I don't think I'm an adult yet. I, I, <laughs> and I have <laughs> well, a one-year-old. <laughs> you know, we think of it in terms of work and marriage and parenthood, but really it's, it's more psychological than anything today. And, and, and I want to talk about that, that actually. Um, you know, you mentioned the things of having a stable job, having an investment or having a house or having responsible um, responsibilities that you've provided for. Uh, but a lot of people in, and you mentioned the Indian example. I'll, I'll just give you a little idea of that because there is this, you know, middle class growing uh, with the tech revolution, with the IT uh, revolution in India. I don't know if revolution is a good word, but the, the number of jobs coming here. Right. Um, so a lot of people are doing that. Right? They have the bucket list or the boxes they have to tick. They they graduate, they finish their degree, they get an MBA, they get a job, then they get the manager. They get and I, of course this is not everyone. I'm not generalizing, but there are a lot of people who are following this this arc, and then they get the job, they get the house, they get the mortgage, they get the EMIs, they get the car. So they have the status in society. They have the the circles that they can enter, the networks that they can break. But so technically, quote unquote, they are very uh, they're adults in their 20s. 
but they don't behave like them right they 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 don't have the emotional maturity to handle it uh, so could you it, from a psychological point of view uh, explain or um, help me understand what it means to be an adult because economically yes we've established what it means to be an adult or um you know socially accepted adults but many of them retire at the age of 65 and they're still insecure they don't know who they are <laughs> they, they 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 you know they get extremely offended they get extremely upset if something is said so uh because it's it's very helpful for an emerging and a growing economy like india where a lot of people are following this path of the pursuit of happiness when it comes to the job the money the the savings the all that I think it's extremely important for people listening to understand what it means to be an adult emotionally and psychologically and mentally. It's a great question. It's really my favorite question in my entire career in research. Do you feel that you reached adulthood? And corresponding question, what do you think makes a person an adult? Now, when I first started studying 18 to 29-year-olds, I assumed that adulthood was defined by the traditional markers. You finish your education, you get a stable job, you get married and you have a child. I mean, that's how social scientists were writing about adulthood at the time. But oddly, it, it had never occurred to any of them to ask people, what do you think makes a person an adult? They had these assumptions about it. And so when I started asking that question, of 18 to 29 year olds, I was really surprised to find that none of them mentioned these traditional markers. Right. They instead talked about more personal, individualized, individualistic markers. And there are three that came up so often that I eventually started calling them the big three. Mm-hmm. These three criteria are the ones that people mention overwhelmingly, not in not only in the U.S., but it, it's been found in, in many countries around the world, not necessarily India or China. Those are more complicated. But in the West, let's say, the, the big three are accepting responsibility for yourself. And that's number one, always. Mm-hmm. That word responsibility, and it's responsibility for yourself, not for other people, for yourself. Number two, making independent decisions. And number three, becoming financially independent. Those are the three that people mentioned over and over and over again in, in my many hundreds of interviews over 30 years. Now, what do you notice about those three? It's pretty obvious what unites them, right? It's about independence and self-sufficiency. Accept responsibility for yourself make your own decisions, become financially independent. It's about becoming a self-sufficient person. And then once you become a self-sufficient person and you can make your own decisions and you're responsible for yourself, then you can think about becoming uh, married. You, you, You can get married, you can care for a child. But first, there's this idea that you'll become an independent, self-sufficient person. That's what it means to be an adult. Then you can commit to other people. And that's fascinating too, because I feel like that's a new invention. I think mm-hmm. if you look at the history of how people have thought about adulthood, they've generally defined it in terms of responsibilities to others, commitments to others. 
So mm-hmm. marriage has, across cultures been the number one criterion for adulthood for mm-hmm. as, as far as we could tell. I mean, from the historical record. Unfortunately, we didn't have social scientists hundreds of years ago, so we, mm-hmm. we don't have a, a, a real research record. But we know how people have written about it and how they spoke about it. And it was marriage above all. And parenthood is a sort of uh, cap on top of marriage, an additional sort of requirement for being fully adult. And those are all, those are both about responsibilities to others, right? Right. right. You get married to someone, now you're responsible to that person for life. You have children, you're responsible to them for life. Uh, and so, it's fascinating that in our time, we've, we've really reinvented adulthood. We've redefined it from responsibilities and commitments to others to responsibility for yourself and becoming an independent, self-sufficient person. That's fascinating because that's such a thing that goes unspoken, right? Because it's all these markers which is outward, right? You see someone's success, you see someone's um, way of being perceived by someone else, and you say, wow, what a successful adult. And and next thing you you see that person. You see the the degree, if they got a college degree, and you you see the marriage, and you see the kids, and it's easy to to find adulthood that way. It's a lot more difficult when it's internal and psychological. I mean, yeah. I can't tell you if you accept responsibility for yourself or not. Only you can say so. I yeah. can't tell you if you make independent decisions. You're the only one who defines that. Yeah, I, I used to find it fascinating when I used to go um, do, uh, you know, my, my, my comedy set at uh, corporate events. You th- technically have the most number of adults there, right? You have these corporate, these CEOs, these senior management uh, executives, and all these people. And then they would give me a brief before I get on stage. They're like, okay, the age group is between 25 and 50. And these are all, you know, corporate employees. But make sure you don't crack adult jokes. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> I found it. Uh, that's, so... that's very funny. Uh, <laughs> they, they give you one, that one guideline. <laughs> yeah. so that's right. What does it mean to be adult? I crack adult jokes all the time when I give talks. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the fun of it. Yeah. For me, is uh, you know talking about emerging adulthood and and sort of poking the stereotypes that people have about it. It's yeah, it's no, it's so refreshing to hear someone who's studied this and has been a, such a part of it because, as you said, right, it's so easy to say, oh, these youngsters nowadays, snowflakes, don't get it, you know, they don't know what it means to have it tough. Um, but it is, and it it is what it is, and you know, I I'm. I've, I've caught myself on this show, um, you know, talking about this, the, the, the vulnerability that they're exposed to when they're on these networks and to bullying and to these ideas, but at the same time getting offended and censoring words and canceling people. So, yes, I, there is an extreme to everything. And I think there are people within this this population, the 18 to 29, the emerging adults who are extremely sensitive and and who who rather you know cancel someone than you know have a conversation with them, but that's not sure. the. That's definitely there. I, I wouldn't deny that. Yeah, but that's a real fringe kind of view of things. It's just not how most of them view things. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's encouraging to hear because we very often only hear from the few who are the noisiest, but the most uh, aren't noisy and they're just going about doing their thing, <laughs> being <Absolutely>. adults. <laughs> I do think. That in the U.S., and maybe this is true in India, 
it is a very liberal generation. If you look at political views by generation in the U.S., yeah. the youngest Americans are also the most liberal. And by that, I mean they are the most likely to favor government interventions to reduce inequality, for example. Yeah. The most accepting of cultural diversity. In fact, they embrace cultural diversity. Uh, the youngest Americans, yeah. the emerging, the ones who are emerging adults now, much more than their parents or grandparents. They have, they're much more likely to have friends who are from a variety of ethnic groups. They're much more likely to date and, and want to marry people outside of their ethnic group. Um, they're much more supportive of international efforts to address climate change and other kinds of environmental destruction. Uh, so in all those ways, they're, they're more liberal than their parents and grandparents. There's no doubt about that. And hopefully that makes for a better future, a more considerate, a more empathetic future where people aren't just about self-gain and I, self, you know? Yes, hopefully. hopefully. I, and I think it has that potential. I think they're, go, they're growing up coming into a very multicultural world. It's a very multicultural society in the U.S. I mean, we do have a lot of conflict among our different groups, but we've let in a huge amount of immigration in the last 50 years. And it used to be a, a bipartisan issue. It used to be just something Republicans were as likely as Democrats to support. That, that was viewed as the source of our vitality, mm. letting in immigrants from all over the world. And unfortunately, the, the Republicans in the last 10 or 15 years have really turned against immigration, partly because they found that immigrants tended to vote Democratic once they were here for a while. <laughs> they felt and, betrayed. <laughs> uh, and they uh, didn't like that so much. But it's it, the fact is we've let in... T- tens of millions of immigrants in the last 50 years. And so our young Americans who are in their uh, teens and 20s now, they're growing up in a, uh, an amazingly multicultural society. My, my own children, mm-hmm. I have 23-year-old twins. When they were in high school, there maybe 500 students in their high school mm-hmm. were from families that spoke 80 different languages at home. Wow. Think about that for a minute. 500 kids that's spoke crazy. 80 different languages at home. And that that's just a great emblem of how much diversity there is in American society. Truly. And my kids loved it. And, you know, they didn't even really think about it. They just had friends. They didn't weren't looking for friends from uh, different groups, but they were uh, around kids of, of different groups. So they, they made friends uh, uh, from those groups. My, my son, his three best friends were from Kenya, Vietnam, and Albania. That's high school. So that's the world that young Americans are growing up in. And they value the, the diversity of the society that, that they live in. They don't feel threatened by it the way so many of their parents and grandparents have. That's brilliant. I hope that's a sign of the times to come. You know, that's, that's great. So um Jeffrey Jensen on it. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I really, really appreciate you shedding light on a lot of um, things that were conflicting in my own head, but also things that people get a bias, um, you know, um, side to when they're reading about it in articles or media. And I really appreciate you kind of debunking a lot of these myths and kind of uh, 
you know sharing a lot of the the work that you've dedicated your your, your life to so I, thank you so much on behalf of everyone listening and myself you're welcome and thank you for asking me about something besides emerging adulthood I've given hundreds of interviews on that topic over the past 30 years, and I love it. But I, I also love talking about culture and how that influences us and how we think about it and how it makes for our common life today. So I really enjoyed the questions you asked. Thank you. I appreciate that because I was wondering, like, oh, I should get to emerging adults. Or, then I was like, no, let me, let's just go with the flow. And I think uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed what you had to say. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.